Well, so it's so good to be here at Liberty Union Square. How's everybody doing tonight? Good, great. Well, so let me ask you a question. What is it, what emotion comes to mind when I say the word money? Do you feel good? Feel like puppies and rainbows? Do you feel comforted and all that? Or do you feel a little uneasy in your chair? Yeah, probably. Um, more questions. Do you make enough? Do you save enough? Do you think you know what you're doing with it? Have you mastered money? If you're not saying yes to these questions, well, buckle up. I think tonight is going to be for you. Now, I did appreciate the, the last song that we sang. It had the line, all oppression will cease every captive release. And I do think that money is an area where a lot of us feel under oppression. Now, I'm sure that song was thinking about other oppressions, but money is an area that I think a lot of us feel we are on the wrong side of this equation all the time. So I'm going to spend the first few minutes today talking about priorities in money, and then Dawn is going to talk about the spiritual aspect of money. Okay? So we're going to talk today out of the book of Habakkuk. Now, how many have read the book of Habakkuk? Hey, there we go. So for... For those, Habakkuk is right around here in your Bible, right? If this is the front and this is the back, it's so small. It doesn't take you more than 10 minutes to read it, but it could take you more than 10 minutes to find it, right? <laughs> it's just three chapters long, and let me summarize it for you. Habakkuk is a prophet, and all a prophet means is that it's somebody who's gifted by God to hear from God to deliver a message, right? So Habakkuk was a prophet. And he's looking around his country, and it's filled with evil. And he is saying, God, where are you in this evil? Where are you? What's going on? Do you not see this? And God answers Habakkuk and says, I do. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I got it under control. All right? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send in the Babylonians to take care of this. Now, the Babylonians were super evil, right? So Habakkuk is sitting there confused, and he says to God, as you can imagine, God, that doesn't make any sense. The Babylonians are even worse. God says, just be patient. Be patient. The Babylonians will get their just punishment, and, uh, and goodness shall be restored. All right? Habakkuk bought into it. And then chapter 3, the last chapter of Habakkuk, he writes a song with music, and in my head, I imagine it's like a, a Bollywood movie ending with dancing. All right? So, so that is the story of Habakkuk. In the beginning, Habakkuk was complaining. At the end, Habakkuk was happy and he was satisfied. What do you think changed? The thing that changed is that Habakkuk had a new vision, a new picture, something that provided him a new reason to see things differently. It was a big why. A big why to see things differently. God had given Habakkuk a new big why. So it's common to get stuck in ruts, in, in, in bad habits, in a string of making bad decisions after bad decisions. Frankly, it is in our very human nature to take short-term pleasure in exchange for long-term gain. We trade off long-term benefit in order to get something now. 
And this is really, really true with money. Some of us are upside down in that we spend more than we earn. Others of us make enough, but we don't really have a plan for what we're going to do with it. And so perhaps we feel like we're a little reckless with it. Now, this is not a should message, because knowing that you should do something is just not enough. I mean, I know I should eat better. I know I should exercise more. And you know what I did today? I had baked ziti at lunch, and I took a nap, right? So, yeah. And I would do it again tomorrow if it was a Sunday, I'll tell you that. Now, from a should standpoint, there are a lot of great resources that can tell you the 15 or 25 or 150 things, specific things that you should do with your money to manage it more effectively. But none of those matter if you do not have a big why for your money. If you don't have a reason to take that action, you're not going to take the action just like because I don't feel like I have a reason to eat better and to exercise more, I ate Big ziti and I took a nap, right? <laughs> the thing that causes us to take different actions, actions where we trade a short-term pleasure for a long-term benefit, is like Habakkuk to have a big why, yeah. all right? A big why. A big why is something that is so meaningful, so powerful, so personal, that you will change your decisions around money. If you can't seem to save money, you need a big why. If you're in a dead-end job that doesn't pay you nearly enough, you need a big why to motivate you to get out of that. Everybody can use a big why. Now, sometimes the reason to have a big why can be positive, right? You get married, you have a kid, all those things are reasons for you to rethink your financial reality. Sometimes it can be negative. You max out your credit cards and you're feeling like you're running out of financial runway, that could be another reason. But regardless of the reason, all of us can and should have a big why for our money. Now for Dawn and I, Dawn and me, for me, for Dawn and me, we, thank you, thank you, a fellow grammarian, I appreciate that. For Dawn and me, we had a big why, which was to get our kids through college without student loan debt, either for them or for us. Now our kids are now 26 and 23, sailed through college without having student loan debt. So we accomplished our big why, hooray for us. And I know, probably half of you still have student loan debt and are thinking, man, I wish these guys were our parents, right? <laughs> I get that. But once that was done, we needed a new big why, right? You can have a series of big whys that once you accomplish it, you need another big why, another goal for your money to keep you motivated to making good decisions. So our next big why was to, was to plan to save and invest in order to buy property here in New York, right? Now that's a long-term plan. Buying property in New York is a big deal. That being said, your big why is likely different. Whether your big why is to get out of debt or to give away 30% of your income or to go on a huge cruise or Maybe it's to retire at 50 and be a self-sustaining missionary somewhere. Whatever it is, this is your big why. And it needs to make sense only to you and to God. It doesn't need to make sense to me. It doesn't need to make sense to other people. This is your big why. And just having a big why can give you some peace. 
because it helps you focus your decision making. It helps you feel like you have a direction. It helps you feel like you're making progress towards something. So for the rest of my time tonight, we're gonna to talk about keeping the big why in front of you, keeping your big why in front of you so that you will have the conviction to take action. So Habakkuk 2, 2 and 3, we're gonna just read through those really quickly because that's gonna be the basis for most of the next few minutes. Habakkuk 2, 2 and 3. And then God answered Habakkuk to Habakkuk, Write this, write what you see, write it out in big block letters so that it can be read on the run. This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wait, and it does not lie. If it seems slow in the coming, wait. It's on the way. It will come right on time. So the first point of keeping your big why in front of you is to write down your big why. The beginning of this verse, it says, and then God answered, write this, write what you see. Do you have a big why for your money? Probably some of you do. Have you written it down? I encourage you to write it down. In fact, I'm gonna ask if you take out a pen and a notebook or your phone, over the next few seconds, I'd like you to write down your big why. If you don't have a big why, for your money, I'm gonna suggest that you pray about it quickly and then write down the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, I'm gonna give you like 30 seconds to do this. All right, your big why. See, when you write something down, it becomes more than just an idea. It becomes a target or a goal. It changes to something with intention. Writing down a big why is actually the first step in accomplishing it. Now, how many times have we had an idea that was really good? Maybe it was a business idea, or maybe it was a joke, or maybe it was, I don't know, a, a, a story or a dinner place we wanted to go to, and then it gets pushed out of our brain by important things like Facebook or television shows or, or, or baseball playoffs or something like that. So writing it down makes a difference. It is the first part of keeping your big why in front of you. So write down your big why. The second point here, it says, write it down big. In Habakkuk 2.2, it says, write it out in big block letters. Write it out in big block letters. What this is saying is be bold. Be bold with your big why. Write it with confidence and with boldness. Do not be ashamed of the goal that God has given you. In fact, God's big why for your life and for your finances is very likely much bigger than the big why that you think you hear him saying. Right? Regardless, this is your big why. Don't diminish it. Don't apologize for it. Don't be embarrassed about it. Believe that God can help you accomplish it. Believe that God can help you make decisions to see this through. 
So point two, write down your big why with boldness and big letters. Point three, take action on your big why. So Habakkuk 2.2 continues. Of course, it started out, write it, uh, write it, and then write it in big block letters so that it can be read on the run. I think this is an interesting thing. What it's saying is you will not accomplish your big why sitting on the couch, right? Your big why demands action. It requires you to run, and sometimes when you're running, you need to be reminded where you're going and why. And that is why you have this written down. And you think about it from a, from a money standpoint, you have decisions that you make all the time. Why am I not going out to dinner every night? Well, it's because of this big why. Why am I looking to boost my income? It's because of my big why. Why am I using my subway pass instead of taking an Uber? It's because of my big why. Now, this is where tools are awesome. Tools like Dave Ramsey's tools or uh, or uh, David Bach or Jane Bryant Quinn, they have, there's plenty of tools that can be used. In fact, last year we gave away Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. So uh, if you're looking for something, it may be on your bookshelf, uh, or, <laughs> or that would be a good resource for you. But there are many great resources to help you with the specific actions to take, ways to make your big why go. But, of course, you still need to have the big why to have motivation to take action. So point three was to take action on your big why. Fourth point, be patient. Be patient for your big why. Now, most of the time, the big why doesn't happen right away. In fact, when it comes to money, almost all the time it doesn't happen right away unless somebody wins the lottery. Now, Habakkuk 2.3 says, if it seems slow in coming, wait. It is on the way. It will be right on time. When it comes to money, any big why is going to take some time. It'll take time to get out of debt. It'll take time to save money to put your kids through college. It'll take time to save for a down payment on an apartment. Patience is critical. Your big why is like, well, a baseball season. Any baseball fans here? A few. Thank you. Thank you. All right. This is my little boring baseball part. A baseball season is 162 games long. It starts at the very end of March, and the season itself ends at the very end of September. Right? That baseball season, that is a long, long March. Now, if you're standing in April as a baseball player on a baseball team, and you're thinking, well, if I win this game, I'm going to the World Series, ain't going to happen. It takes a lot of games over a lot of months, a lot of good game decisions to be made again and again and again and again in order for you to be in a position to be in the World Series. And you have to make good game decisions in April and in May and in June, not just in September and in October when the playoffs start. For your big why, it may take months or even years, but every day you can be making progress to it. So be patient with your big why. Fifth point, don't let the pennies overshadow your big why. So when you have a financial big why, it will change the way you think about money. But money is the tool, it is not the goal. It's the tool, not the goal. It is easy to transform your big why 
into a money goal, and that money goal becomes your God. All right? Money is nothing more than a temporary state of spendability. All right? It is not you. It is not your identity. It is not your worth. It is not your security. It is not your acceptance. And frankly, money is not permanent. Keep your big Y in front of you in big block letters so that you can see it when you run. A few years ago, I got on this Quicken kick, which Quicken is, for people my age, what Mint probably is now, right? Anybody use Mint? All right. So I got on this Quicken kick where I was tracking every penny I spent every day for many, 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 many months. And at the end of every month, I could tell you exactly how much I spent on food, how much I spent on rent, how much I spent on movies and entertainment, how much I spent on gasoline, how much I spent on insurance, how much I spent on soda, how much I spent on gum, right? (laughs) Dumb things like that. Um, Now, I know this works for some people, but for me, I got lost in the pennies, right? I had given myself an allowance And I thought I was winning when at the end of the week, I still had money left over from my measly $20 allowance. But the goal of money is not to not spend it, right? The goal is not to avoid spending money. The goal is to spend it with intentionality, all right? The goal is to spend it exactly where you want to and intend to. The big why gives you the framework for intentionality. Hebrews 13.5 talks about keep your life free from the love of money. And for me, now if you use Mint, God bless you, that's awesome. But for me, Quicken was a way to transform my big why into a love of money. So I did not mind laying that down, I'll tell you that. So, uh, but the point is, don't get lost in the pennies and make money your goal. Now finally, before Dawn comes up, I have a bonus point for you. Bonus point. Don't let the second circle come between you and your money. All right? It's like, well, what in the world does that mean? Right? So the first circle are people in your life who will be for you regardless of what happens. They are your parents. Hopefully they are your spouse, if you've got a spouse. Maybe they are a kid if you've got adult kids like we do. Maybe it's siblings and maybe not. Maybe it's, and hopefully it's probably one or two or maybe three very close friends. These are your first circle people. That regardless of what happens in your life, they will be for you. They will have your back all the time. All right? It's awesome to have first circle people. Now, you can tell them your big why. They may not understand it. They may not agree that that should be your big why. They may not do that big why themselves, but at the end of the day, they're going to be supportive of your big why because that's what first circle people do. Then there is a larger second circle group of people, people who know who we are and who we usually know. These people are the people that we interact with on a daily basis, often people we work with, people we go to church with, people we socialize with. Now, Second circle people are awesome and we love them. We need to have second circle people in our life. But it is in this circle where, for us, comparison, jealousy, and projection of our own fears live. 
Look, we can take pride when we can say good things about ourselves or about our situation. But when we don't have something good to say, it can be awfully embarrassing to us when we think about the impact on that second circle and what they may be thinking of us. Now, I love Instagram, right? Who loves Instagram? Everybody loves Instagram. So, but you know, the, the culture that we have is you go out to eat, you Instagram it. You go on a great exotic vacation, you Instagram it. You buy a new suit, you Instagram it. You go to a concert, you Instagram it. But to accomplish your big why, maybe you decide to eat out less, to have staycations more often, to be happy with the clothes that you have, and to only go to half the concerts you used to. But these are tough things to Instagram, right? right? Nobody's going to Instagram those things. Well, nobody perhaps except, except for me. So if we can have the first Instagram, Hey, here I am at home on vacation, painting our apartment on a staycation. Hashtag vacation goals, hashtag dream trip. Yes. Or this next one. I'm enjoying a personal Ed Sheeran concert on Spotify. <laughs> hashtag better than the Barclays Center. Or this last one. Best seats for the Yankees playoffs. <laughs> Hashtag almost the house Ruth built. Hashtag bathroom lines are smaller though, so that's good. Now, people don't do this, right? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when you make choices for your big why sometimes because it means that it's the absence of something that could be great that you could be Instagramming. But to do your big why, sometimes you have to make these decisions. All right? And, and you know, one of the things that, that happens with this second circle is, is that we're concerned that if we don't go to the concert or we're not going out to eat or we can't go on this big exotic vacation with our friends, that they'll think that somehow, oh, it's a shame, the Saddlers are poor. It's a shame, something, something, something bad has happened to them financially. I hope they're okay, right? Or you know, I really thought they were at our level, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. Right? That's, that is what we think they're thinking. But these second circle people, as nice as they are and how, how important they are in our lives and how much we love them, they, at the end of the day, are not going to pay your bills. They are not going to get you out of debt. They are not going to pay for college. And they're not going to buy your house or fund your retirement. When you look around at this, at this second circle of people, just let them do what they're going to do. Because you have your big why. Your big why is bigger what, uh, than what they think of you. And I'm going to let you in on a secret. No one in the second circle really thinks a lot about your financial situation. You may think they do, but they really don't. You know why? They got their own financial stuff on their mind, right? But if they ask, if one of your second circle friends says, hey, how come you didn't go to Ed Sheeran concert? It's okay to say, you know what? I'm saving up money so that I can do this, so I can have my big why. You may inspire them to develop a big why. Someone in the second circle, if they get a great car, be happy for them. If they go on a great vacation and Instagram it all over, like the picture, every picture. 
for weeks and weeks and weeks. I know how it is. For weeks and weeks and weeks. This is a picture of my trip in June. Like, like. But continue to like those pictures and be happy for them. If they buy season tickets for next year's Yankees because they win the World Series this year, congratulate them. But don't be jealous because you have your big why. It's bigger than comparison. It's bigger than jealousy. It's bigger than embarrassment. All right, so pray for your big why. Then write it down in big letters. Take action. Be patient. Don't get lost in the pennies. And don't let the second circle come between you and your big why. And then at the end, maybe you can be like Habakkuk and have a Bollywood dance. So I'm really glad to have gotten that off my chest. But I'm even more excited about what's to come. Here's my wife, Dawn Sadler, to talk more. Can we just give it up one more time for Matt Sadler? We love to hang out at Union Square because it makes us feel like we're younger and cooler than we actually are. I think we're cool, but... Um, anyway, today we're talking about financial peace. And earlier, Matt talked about the tools in the books that are available that you can use to create a practical plan around your finances. And I say yes and amen to all of that. However, let me just tell you now, Matt's the funny one, just in case. <laughs> in case you're waiting for the big laugh, it's not coming. Um, <laughs> I think that there is a danger when we internalize that message as, hey, go get your financial house in order and then you can have some peace. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. So today I want to talk about financial peace from a little bit different perspective. I don't want to talk about the financial peace that comes when your credit card bills are paid and everything, there's plenty of money in the bank and you have that big why that Matt talked about. I'm not talking today about someday peace. I'm talking about the kind of financial peace that God has for you today. You see, money doesn't do anything. It's just a piece of paper. It's not good, it's not bad. It's not power, it's not influence, it's not prestige. It doesn't say anything or prove anything or validate a single thing about you unless you allow it to. See, money is just going to attach itself to whatever you've made agreement with and then affirm it. Money magnifies what is in our heart. This has no power over you. What has power is your choice to make agreement with either the lies of who the enemy says you are or the truth of who God says you are. Because you are going to use money however you need to to confirm what it is that you believe about yourself. That's the power that money has. A radical transformation in our finances has to start with a radical transformation in our hearts and in our minds. So today we're going to talk about the how. How do I get some of that God peace? 
that peace that I can walk out of this room with, even if the credit card bills are piling up and the savings account is dwindling down? How do I get the kind of peace that is not just at the whim of the job market or the stock market or the housing market? How do I get and keep the kind of peace, the lasting, abiding, unshakable peace that is only possible with God? Isaiah 54.10 says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. See, our finances, arrange here, our finances are a very tricky part of our spiritual walk and our life, and here's why. Because most of us, we live our financial lives in isolation. It's not proper to talk about how much money you make. It's not proper to talk about how much money you owe. It's not proper to talk about how much you pay in rent. So we live our lives financially in isolation, and that's dangerous. Because wherever there is isolation, there is the potential for the lies of the enemy to take root. He will lie to us and he will try to get us to feel fear and shame and guilt or pride or greed around our money. We lose our peace when we make agreement with those lies. Here you go. Here's my peace. But we can take back our peace when we make agreement with the truth of who God says we are. See, as long as we continue to treat financial issues as just regular issues instead of the spiritual issues that they are, we will continue to fight a battle in the natural that can only be won in the supernatural. This is such an important part of what we're talking about today because if we want financial freedom, we have to be willing to see the struggle as a, as a supernatural fight. If we struggle in our finances and we continue to call it a moral issue or a character issue or an economy issue, or if we allow people to speak that over us, we will continue to walk in destructive cycles of shame and fear. It's like bringing a Nerf ball to a knife fight. It's only when we stand up, pick up our weapons, look the lies dead on, and say, enemy, enough. I am wise to your ways, and this ends here. You do not have my permission to lie to me or to torment me anymore. I know who I am, I know whose I am, and I know the inheritance that is mine as a daughter of the Most High God. I am picking up my weapons, and I will claim the land that God has promised me. Get behind me, Satan. You are defeated. God has already declared victory, freedom, and redemption over my finances and over my life. Earlier, Matt talked about the importance of knowing your big why. And he had an exercise, and we all wrote down our big why. He's so cute sitting there. <laughs> now, I know that some of you, you had no problem with that. And maybe some of you 
had a struggle. Maybe you're still trying to find your big why. That's okay. But maybe some of you, through a season of continual disappointments and setbacks, have lost sight of your big why. I know how this feels. Recently, I went through my own season of losing sight of my own big why. Now, I know that might be surprising to some of you because I'm the central ministries, I'm, I'm not the central ministries director, that's Matt's job. <laughs> I am the ministry director of visionaries. And I'm constantly talking to people about dreaming bigger and vision and calling. And I do workshops around goal setting. And yet, I had lost my big why. I have a business, and I wanted desperately to take that business in one direction. But every single time I went in that direction, it came to nothing. Have you ever been in one of those seasons? And there was another direction that I didn't want to go at all. And opportunity after opportunity kept presenting itself. And I was frustrated and I felt stuck. And although I continued to pray and pray and pray, I felt like I was getting radio silence from God. Even after everything that I knew about God, even though I in the face of testimony after testimony after testimony from people in visionaries, even though the evidence of God's faithfulness was all around me, I lost heart and I began to feel a shift in my heart away from God. Because God was not answering my prayers, my way, in my time, I began to see him is tight-fisted and withholding. It was around this time that I was catching up with a friend of mine, and I was sharing with her. She said, how's work? And I just did this. Bleh. Do you guys ever do that? It's just like that moment where it just all comes out, and you want to, like, get it back in, and you can't. <laughs> and she listened patiently and waited for me to finish. And then she said to me, maybe God is inviting you into the wrestle. Now what she was referring to is the story of Jacob who wrestled with God all night and would not give up until he received his blessing. We pick up the story in Genesis 32, 24 through 28, which says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. But the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. See, Jacob knew that his blessing came from God, but sometimes God invites us into the wrestle. The wrestle is when we are mad and we're frustrated and we don't know why. And God invites us to bring that to him. God wants that part of us. 
If we're in church saying, oh, you're a good, good father, yay, and then we're over here being, I'm so angry, I can't stand it. God doesn't want that kind of conflict in your life. He wants you to come before him. He's asking you to step into the wrestle. It is in the wrestle that we ask God the tough questions where we hear some tough answers. It is in the wrestle that God develops us and matures us so that we have the capacity to receive and steward the blessing that we are asking for. See, the wrestle is an interesting place. We talk about spiritual warfare. and spiritual warfare, we put on our armor and we draw our sword and we march into battle certain that God will give us the victory. We are called to be bold and we are called to take courage. In the wrestle, we're also called to be bold and to take courage, but it's a different kind. Because in spiritual warfare, where we put our armor on, in the wrestle, we must be brave enough to take our armor off, to put down the excuses and the walls and the bravado. You see, the wrestle is heart-to-heart -heart combat. It's the place where we align our hearts with God. It's the place where we humble ourselves before God and say, search me, O God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. You see, in the wrestle, I had to learn that the person who was tight-fisted and withholding wasn't God. It was me. I was asking God to bless something that I wasn't willing to trust him with. So today I'm going to talk about three lessons that I learned in the wrestle and how we can apply these truths to experience God's financial peace today. The first lesson that I learned is to know. When we know the character of God as a good and loving father who withholds no good thing from those who love him, when we know his character, when we know his word, when we know his promises, we are able to gain, we are able to trust him more in every area of our life, including our finances. But we must also know ourselves. If we're in a situation where month after month after month we are struggling, just squeaking by, living on a prayer like Bon Jovi, We have an opportunity to step into the wrestle and to ask God, God, is there something going on in my heart that is creating this in the natural over and over and over? Look, I don't deny that there are real heartbreaking seasons of hardship. I have walked through what it means to lose everything. Matt and I have been through some nail-biting seasons. And looking back, we can see how much God loves us, and we can see how he provided for us, but they were not fun to walk through. So I do not deny that hard seasons are real. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our credit card bill at the end of the month, and we're like, wow, 
I went out to dinner a lot more than I thought I did. Or, wow, when did coffee get so expensive? Or, wow, where did all these Uber charges come from? I am disputing this with my bank. <laughs> if that's us, maybe God is inviting us into the wrestle to ask what is going on with my heart that I am saying one thing and spending another. I really love something that Pastor Stephen Furtick said about this recently. He said, you know, if we go to work in the morning and we don't make our bed, we can pray all day long that God will make our bed. But when we get home, we will find that angels did not break into our apartment and make our bed while we were at work. I think it's that way with our finances. And I just wonder... How many times are we asking God to make our bed? When we make a budget, we're making our own bed. When we're obedient with the tithe, we are making our own bed. When we live within our means, we are making our own bed. How many times are we asking God for a miracle and God is asking us to simply make our own bed? The second lesson that I learned is to discern. As I mentioned, a lack of peace in our finances is often the result of a spiritual issue. The enemy has a whole toolbox of tricks that he will use to try to get us to feel fear and shame and guilt and pride and greed around our money because he knows that if he can distract us with all of that, that he will keep us from the race that God has called us to run and to win. But perhaps the most common lie of all that the enemy uses is the lie that everything would be okay if we only had more. If I had more, I'd be okay. If I had more, I'd be more generous. If I had more, everything, all my problems would go away. But he takes it one step further because not only does he tell us that more, not God, but more will solve all of our problems, but then he tells us that God doesn't want us to have it. Does this sound familiar? It should. It is literally the oldest lie in the book. When Eve was in the Garden of Eden, surrounded by every good thing, the enemy convinced her, God does not want you to have the very best thing. There's nothing wrong with abundance, and there's nothing wrong with prosperity. God promises this to those who love him. He loves our big, bold, crazy, audacious dreams. Ah, oh, he loves it. That's how he created us. But when we pursue more ahead of or instead of God, that is when we operate outside of his plan and outside of his peace. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. 
We can experience financial peace today when we ask God to give us the discernment to identify and the strength to reject and rebuke the lies of the enemy and to pick up the truth of God instead. The enemy will try to tell you, you know what? Your bank account makes you less than someone else. But the word says that the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. He will put you at the top and not the bottom. The enemy will say, you have blown it too many times. God's not going to bless you again. But the word says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. The enemy says that your financial situation is hopeless. You are hopeless. But the word says that instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. The enemy will say, you'll never make it in New York. Give up. Pack up. Go home. But God says, I will give you every place where you step your foot. The third lesson is to rest. Yes, God calls us to work hard. And yes, there are areas of our life in which he calls us to make our own bed. But may we never lose sight of the fact that work was created as a form of worship. It is an act of faithfulness and steadfastness and service. It is how we use the gifting that he has give us, given us to serve those around us and to impact culture in the places where he calls us to. Yes, God calls us to work, but he also calls us to rest. If you are finding that you are continually striving and hustling out of fear, then maybe it's an opportunity to step into the wrestle and to ask God and yourself some tough questions about what's really driving you. Do we think that God won't really provide for us? Are we hustling and striving because we don't trust that God will provide for us? Or do we need to step into the wrestle and get fresh revelation about God as a good, good father? Are we hustling and striving to try to prove our worth to other people? Or do we need to step into the wrestle, get quiet before God, and connect with the truth that we are enough just as we are? Are we hustling and striving because we're trying to create an identity out of money and power and influence? Or do we need to step into the wrestle and reconnect with our identity as sons and daughters of the God who spoke the universe into existence? It doesn't get more powerful or influential than that. Is God calling us? To put, down our rest, to put down our hustle and our strive and step into the wrestle and learn to trust him as our provider, our exalter, and our defender. Psalm 127, 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. In her book, The Sacred Slow, Dr. Alicia Britt Scholey writes, the clenched fist displays the delusion of, steward, of ownership. 
An open hand reveals the realities of stewardship. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. You see, in the wrestle, I had to learn the one thing that I had not been willing to do. The one thing that had left me stuck. The one thing that had left me frustrated. The one thing that had left me feeling like God had abandoned me. He hadn't abandoned me. In the wrestle, I had to learn to say, yes, Lord. Wherever you want me to go, yes, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, yes, Lord. Whoever you want me to serve, whatever ground you want me to take, whatever sacrifice you would have me to make, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I am all in, Lord. Because ultimately what God wants from us is to cast our cares upon him, to take his peace in exchange, to trust him with every area of our life, including our finances. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.